New community, good morning. Glad to be here with you this morning, family. Uh, right out of the gates, we're going to start. If you have a Bible uh, or you use your phone or whatever you do, let's turn to Mark 10. That's where we're going to be at. Our passage is a familiar one this morning. It's the rich young ruler. And today, really, the goal is to study the two main characters in this story, Rich, as I'm going to call him for the rest of the time, and then uh, God, the character of God kind of by way of Jesus in this story, all right? So that's what we're looking at, are those two characters specifically. Let's begin, and we're going to read this first portion. It's Mark 10, 17 through, I believe it's 22, where I, uh, where I end this first portion. And it says this, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared. All of these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So this morning, I'm looking for a bit of crowd participation. So let me throw this question out, and then as things come to mind, you can just kind of shout them out. What do you think we learn from this young man with great wealth? What can be learned from this young man with great wealth? Throw a couple of things out there if they come to mind. Don't get rich, okay? Good. Right out of the gates, don't get rich, okay? What else? Okay, something, maybe the thing behind the thing, right? I'll use that phrase a little bit later, but maybe there's something, something else going on. What else? I'm sorry, what? Idols. Okay, and maybe that is the thing behind the thing, right? Yeah, I think there's one really, really specific thing that we learn from Rich, and here is what it is, that wealth is not fully the issue. Wealth is not fully the issue. Now, to do this, to really look at this idea, unpack this idea, I think we have to acknowledge a few things right away. And the first is this. This guy seems really normal to me in a lot of ways. He's respectful. He's earnest. I think he's probably desiring to do what is right. And honestly, when I read that into the story, he seems a lot maybe like me, seems a lot maybe like a lot of us, right? So if we're really to look at this idea, I'm going to invite you to read yourself into this story, almost as if you are the character of Rich, all right? And I'm asking you to do this because I think there's a danger to read this passage as if it might not have anything to say to you because clearly rich is part of the elite, and maybe you don't see yourself as part of the elite, right? I think there's a danger to read this passage thinking about maybe my friend, my rich friend, 
should read this one. This would be a good one for them to read. Or maybe your weird aunt and uncle who have a million dollars somewhere and you're kind of like, nah, this would be a good one for them to read because maybe it speaks something into their lives. But I'm pretty confident that we all have heard the stats enough to know that the overwhelming majority of us in this room would be considered wealthy by the world's standards. And while we may not feel like it, I think this passage becomes something completely different when we read it as if it's spoken to us and not just the billionaires that we can all identify. This teaching comes directly on the heels of what Jerusha spoke about two weeks ago, right? Jesus instructing us to receive the kingdom like a child. Culturally, kids had zero status in society. And so Jesus is inviting us to be like those without status, without position, to be like someone with a life that is untethered to the things that our world claims as important and essential. And then his next interaction is with the rich young ruler, the very epitome of somebody tethered. He's rich, he's a ruler. This was the cultural picture of status in this time. Now, you can read this, and the easiest conclusion is it's demonizing wealth, right? Don't become rich. I don't necessarily see it that way. I don't think wealth is fully the issue in this story. Because honestly, I think God is indifferent to wealth to a degree. It's a little bit similar to how I see dogs. Now, here is where I'm going to pause and say, if you have Twitter, this is going to be where you want to pull out your Twitter because this is the most provocative statement that I will say this morning. I am indifferent to dogs. I don't love them. I don't hate them. They're an animal and I'm a human. And that's kind of where it is. Our paths cross often but they don't really mean anything to me. I don't have either positive or negative emotions around dogs that I see. Dogs are just a thing, similar to like maybe how your catalytic converter is a thing, right? It's in your car, it does something, nobody knows what, well, some people know. I certainly have no idea what it does. It's important, also I pretty sure it's not essential. I think your car can still run without one, right? That is how I understand dogs. I actually think that might be how God sees wealth, a bit indifferent to it. But we get all hung up in this thing, and we imagine God beginning to get worried once the balances of our bank accounts reach a certain number. We think we get to some magic number, we amass some certain amount of wealth, and then God's view of us changes in that moment. But I don't think that's how it works. I don't think it's the fact that Rich was wealthy. I think it's how his wealth changed his understanding of himself. Because wealth often changes people, and usually not for the better. We see it in the first sentence. He comes, falls on his knees, and he says this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And here's what status does. It convinces us that we are in charge. Wealth 
birthed the illusion that we are somehow in control. What must I do is the equivalent of saying, what work needs to get done so I can attain what I want? This is how people with wealth, with status, approach most situations. How can I make this thing happen for the outcome that I want? Generosity, kindness can still very much be present. We kind of see it in rich. But often, there's an underlying motive. There's something under the surface, and it's self-serving. And I can only say this because I've seen it in my own life. And I think if we take a moment to just pause and evaluate and reflect, we've probably seen this in our lives as well. This summer, I had a a good friend stop by our house with her eight-year-old son. I've known him, I've known them since he was an infant. He was born with Down syndrome and since has been diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. He's a wonderfully loving, beautiful, sweet little kid. Also requires an incredible amount of redirection, supervision, and patience. As they walked into our house, we were alerted right away that his new thing is toothbrushes. She said, if you have any toothbrushes in your bathroom, highly likely he will grab them and start chewing on them. So if you don't want that to happen, go ahead and hide your toothbrushes quickly. (laughs) Within minutes, he'd scoped out our entire upstairs. Running from bedroom to office to bathroom, just getting a lay of the land, right? He finally finds his way into the kitchen. We had just bought this box of peaches from Costco, and he grabbed a peach, took a huge bite of this peach, peach juice just dripping all the way down his chin, shirt all the way onto the floor. I'm cool as a cucumber, man. I'm like, we got vinyl floors, no big deal. Have a peach, baby. Come on, enjoy yourself, right? Promptly sets the peach down on the counter with this one bite, reaches back in that box, grabs a second peach, huge bite, of even a bigger bite of this second peach, juice all over the place, and I could feel something inside of my life change in that moment. Grace, my incredible wife, no problems whatsoever just on the couch, engaged in conversation, just has no idea. This is like not even on her radar. And there's this like thing bubbling within me. Now he's got this peach in his hand and he's on the move in our upstairs. And again, I'm trying to play it cool as much as possible. Just like, yeah, check things out. Great, you know, take that peach wherever you want to go. We love it. We're all about generosity here. We're all about hospitality. I give it about two minutes. He's already into our bedroom, and I give it about two minutes until I'm just kind of like, I'm just going to saunter in, kind of check things out. I walk into our bedroom. He's full on in our bed, in our covers, eating this, having the time of his life, eating this peach. (laughs) I didn't lose it. I kept it together. But again, it was like, it was about all I could do. And so I just, you know, politely, quietly kind of usher him, let's go downstairs, let's, let's maybe put the peach down, let's go downstairs, and I'll, you know, I'll kind of be with you, we'll play, we'll do whatever. 
all under the guise of, oh, I'm all about being with you and being present and wanting to be hospitable in this moment. But really, it was about me monitoring the situation, right? It was about me trying to control things in that moment. It was a peach. I mean, well, I don't, I don't, how much is a peach? A dollar, a dollar? It doesn't matter. It just absolutely doesn't matter. Comforters can be washed. It just absolutely did not matter. And yet there was something inside of me that just, you eat one peach. That's what you get. You come to our house, I'll give you a peach, but you get one, right? <laughs> and when you eat it, you eat it at the counter, and then you throw it away and you put the dishes away and you certainly don't eat a peach in your bed. Like that, you just don't do that. It feels silly to even say, it feels ridiculous to even say it up front because it's just a peach, it's just a comforter. But we so easily get trapped in ourselves. We get wrapped around this idea of control. Rich was a faithful person. If we take him at his own word, he sought to do right by others. But you'll notice that a few key commandments are missing in that list that Jesus says, notably the first and most important, you shall have no other God before me. So why doesn't Jesus ask him this question, the seemingly most important one, right? And I wonder if it's out of an abundance of compassion. I mean, how would have Rich answered in that moment? Oh, yeah, totally. God's my number one. Not a problem. Got that on lockdown, right? It's exactly how I would have answered it in that moment. I think it's exactly how many of us would have answered it in that moment. So rather than Jesus squaring this guy up right in that moment and telling him that he's absolutely delusional at best, maybe even dishonest at worst, I think Jesus' compassion leads him to extend an opportunity for Rich to do something radical and then hopefully learn in the process. Jesus says, one thing you lack, and then gives him a list of three things. Classic Jesus. Sell everything, give it to the poor, follow me. Clearly, it's not about stuff. Jesus is driving at something much deeper. He's talking about the thing behind the thing, about Rich's desire for control. He's saying, Rich, you can no longer be the center of your own world. You see, wealth wasn't his God. Status wasn't his God. Rich was his own God. That was the one thing he lacked. His wealth and status were insulating him from recognizing that he needed to decenter himself in order to give God his rightful place. If you are anything like Rich, which I know that I am, and I'm guessing some of you might be, then you probably have felt this before. Timothy Keller says this, Jesus smashed two of the rich young ruler's assumptions Christianity is something you can add and something you can do. These are our same temptations. To approach our faith as something that can be added and or something that can be accomplished in our lives. And when we approach 
our faith in this way, we are still trying to maintain our own God-like status in the midst of being a disciple. The Christian faith is not an add-on to our lives, neither is it something that we are working to accomplish and finalize. The Christian faith is about surrendering. It's about recognizing there is a better way to live and then giving ourselves to it. Wealthy or destitute, status or no status, true faith is marked with love and sacrifice born from our adoration of God. Now, the story continues. Rich leaves, right? And the story continues. Jesus turns to discuss what had just happened with his disciples. And so let's pick up this story, Mark 10, 23 through 31. The scripture says this, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children's, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. So like we started out, let me ask you this question again, looking for a little bit of crowd participation. What does this portion or maybe this entire story now tell us about God? What do we maybe learn about the character of God from this story? I'll end up telling you a couple of things if nobody has anything, but go ahead. I'll still uh, leave it out there. What do we maybe learn about the character of God? He does things backwards. Yeah. Pretty jealous. He knows what we need more than we do. Yeah. I think all of these things kind of fit in here. There's three things that I think we learn about God. The first one is this. God makes the impossible possible. God makes the impossible possible. Jesus leaves no doubt who is in control, and he does this by a specific way of teaching. Now, sometimes Jesus teaches, and it's very nuanced. It's understated. It takes study. It takes work and time to sift through the layers of what Jesus might be saying. And then sometimes it's just right in your face. I think this is one of those in-your-face teaching moments for Jesus. He uses humor and absurdity to bring the listener to a clear and concise and definitive point. It's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than the rich to enter heaven. Now, for hundreds of years, we have tried to explain away what Jesus might mean with this little sentence. 
stuffy theologians look at the Greek and they say, well, camel, the word camel is similar to that for the word rope. So, threading a needle with a rope, although still difficult, is at least an analogy that's consistent and it's a bit less ridiculous, right? And then this gives the ability for people to say, well, depending on the rope size, maybe it can work. Or we have no idea how big their needles were back then. So, so we begin to kind of sift our way through, work our way through of, well, maybe, maybe there's uh, something here that's not as absurd, not as ridiculous. Others believe it's relating eye of the needle to a common small gate that's found in most fortified cities. It was called the eye of the needle, this gate. And in order for a camel to walk through, it would have to unload most of what it was carrying and move through on its knees. I think this is probably the most palatable way for the rich to understand this. Because the metaphor then can be extrapolated to say, well, we just have to unload some of our stuff. We just got to get rid of some of our stuff so that we can enter heaven. I read it as if Jesus is creating an image so absurd, so outlandish, not only does it make you smile when you think about it, but it creates a straightforward picture that Jesus is speaking about an impossibility. Just like it's impossible and ridiculous to think that a camel could go through the eye of the needle, so is it impossible and ridiculous to think that the rich can enter heaven. Now, you stop there. This forces you as the listener, the reader, to ask the question, just like the disciples did in that moment, well, who then can be saved? Nobody can without God. Nobody can. Because only God makes the impossible possible. It's impossible by our own accord. It's impossible to earn it. There is nothing we can do, no matter how rich we are, or even if we do go and sell everything we own. It's ridiculous to think that we have control over these matters at all. Jesus' clear and concise and definitive teaching is that God is in control, and all we can do is accept what God has already done for us. It's impossible to be saved by our work or effort, but possible to receive eternal life by the grace of God. And then Peter says the very thing that I think many of us feel when reading this story. Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. We've literally left everything to follow you. And here's the subtext of that statement. I think what he's really saying in that moment is this. Jesus, we've been with you for a long time, and we've picked up that being rich is a potential problem. And because we've sacrificed a lot to follow you, and now you're saying that it doesn't really matter because only God can do the impossible? We've done a lot more than others. So what's in it for us? This does not seem fair. We've given up everything, and you're telling us, actually, it's really God in control? So the next thing we learn about God is that God is more mysterious than fair. God is more mysterious than fair. Peter's honest question 
lands out there, and Jesus offers one of his cryptic answers about receiving a hundredfold back in this lifetime and about persecution and about eternal life in the coming age and then ends with the famous, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And I wonder if that was a satisfactory answer for them in that moment. I think if I was there, I would not have been all that satisfied with that answer because it doesn't really make a lot of sense, to be honest. And it certainly doesn't seem fair because it is not fair when you approach it like a transaction. And it's exactly how Rich was approaching this situation. What can I do to get what I want? And then Peter's in the same trap, right? Just with a little bit of a Christian spin. We've sacrificed a lot, so it's only fair that there's something in it for us. I think Jesus is exposing the fact that our transactional models do not work in the kingdom. God isn't bound by our transactional understanding of fairness. Give up everything or give up nothing. Jesus' answer is the same. You are loved by God. And eternal life, both in the here and the beyond, can only ever be received. There is no transaction to be made. Some Some people sacrifice everything, and some people are like rich, and God loves them the same. And that is an incredible mystery of God. We think by assigning ourselves to God's family, we are entitled to favor. And yes, there is beauty, and there is wonder, and there is love, i.e. a hundredfold fields and houses in a life that's lived for Christ. But there is also pain, and there is sorrow, and there is hurt, and there is persecution. The way our God works with the faithful and the faithless alike, how he shows love to both the sinner and the saint, how he extends grace equally to the victim and the perpetrator is a mysterious, mysterious thing. And it pushes our faith forward. Richard Rohr, this was uh, kind of adapted from something that he wrote. He says this, mystery is not something you can't know. Mystery is endless knowability. Living inside such endless knowability is finally a comfort, a foundation of ultimate support, security, unrestricted love, and eternal care. For all of us, it takes much of our life to get there. It is what we surely mean by growing in faith. I can't prove this to you. Each soul must learn it on its own, hopefully aided by observing other faith-filled people. A deep, mature faith is realizing and accepting this truth about God's character. The joy of the journey is not about attaining more knowledge, but living comfortably in the mystery. Let me leave you with the final thing that I think we learn about God because it's my favorite thing in this story. A little bit of context. As we chart the course of our year in terms of speaking, we get a a calendar out, a document out, and then all the talks for Sundays go on in a list, and we usually give them a preliminary title. We look at the scripture and say, well, this is probably what we'll title it. This is probably what we'll try to get at at this passage. And it becomes a placeholder 
<clears throat> for a little while until the actual speaker is assigned, and then that person can kind of work with it, right? The placeholder for this one was counterfeit gods. The idea to explore was the thing in our life that becomes idols. Somebody said idols, right? Let's explore these things, riches, wealth, politics, whatever those things are that become idols, become our counterfeit gods. But the more I put myself in this story, the more I thought about just how close Rich was. He was right there. He was almost a follower. He was almost a disciple. But he left. And you know what Jesus does? Let's him leave. Because here's the last thing we learn about God's character. God loves you enough to let you decide. In the story, we don't see Jesus say this as Rich is walking away. Wait, wait, Rich. Whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't think you'd leave. I didn't think you'd call my bluff. What if we do something like we do a 10% payment plan, right? Let's, let's give some stuff. You give 10%. Start kind of taking some steps forward. We're going to get you on a plan. Then maybe you start following me part-time. And then we work into like a three-quarter time follow situation. And eventually, you'll be my disciple. Nope. Jesus watches him walk away. And I love this about Jesus. He's not some sycophant God begging us, to be with him. He's not a friend that uses mind games and manipulation to get your love. He's not chasing you when you've walked away and said, I don't want you, but rather truly loves you by letting you move how you want to move, always accepting of when you're ready to come back, always there when you need him. But he's not going to force you. He's not going to force you. Rich was almost a disciple, but made the calculation that he would rather be served by God than serve God. He liked control, and he was unwilling to give it up. And in some ways, I can respect that. Jesus instructs us to count the costs, right? I think Rich does this in real time. This, to me, is a more authentic expression of his own humanity and frankly a greater way to honor Jesus than some half-hearted and weak commitment that maybe he makes in that moment but can't follow through on. And in love, Jesus lets him walk away. But you know what we have that Rich does not have? We've got the rest of the story, right? We know about Palm Sunday, we know about Good Friday, and we know about Easter we know that the extravagant love of Christ does not end with letting us walk away, but is fulfilled on the cross and made alive in the resurrection. And I wonder when I read this story, I wonder if Rich, maybe after walking away, maybe even after a few weeks of months of kind of thinking about it, wrestling with this interaction, maybe even he made it to the cross. Maybe he was part of that crowd right there. I wonder if he remembered that call of Jesus and at some point in his life became willing to do what was necessary. 
became willing to surrender in that moment. So now that we've been in Rich's shoes, ask yourself this question. How would you have felt in that moment? How would you have responded in that moment? I don't think Jesus' instruction to Rich is prescriptive for all of us, but I do think it's a cautionary tale. A cautionary tale about how our wealth and our stuff and all of our other concerns in our life can blind us from the truth of our hearts. So this week, as you sit with this message, as you think about the rich young ruler, I think it's worth asking yourself, is there something that's insulating me from fully surrendering to God? And if so, are you willing to address it? And the beauty is, is it's never too late. Whether you've never had a faith or you've been an earnest follower for most of your life, true surrender can still be your next step. And if you take that step, you can trust that God's love will always allow you to make that choice. That the mystery of God is far more compelling than our transactional ideas. And that God is a God of possibilities.